Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. This is Leprechaun Lunch with Sean Styers and Jim Irizarry on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Well, it is Friday, it is noon, and that means it is Leprechaun Lunch time. Along with Jim Irizarry, I'm Sean Styers. We've got Notre Dame and Purdue coming up tomorrow as John Hoffman, the birthday boy, John Hoffman, by a day. He was, I think he turned 25 or something like that. Yesterday. 26, I heard. 26. Okay, 26. well, I was off by a year. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's into the uh, the latter half of his 20s now. Yes, that's right. <laughs> he's got a well-developed voice for 26. So. That's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of bourbon where I come from. That's exactly so. right. <laughs> Leprechaun Lunch, of course, is presented by First State Bank as the only community bank headquartered in Elkhart County. First State Bank offers the highest quality products and services. John just gave you the full rundown for tomorrow. Notre Dame and Purdue kicking off at 2.30. Of course, we've got a high school game, Mishawaka against Plymouth, coming up tonight at 7. That game over on 96.1, the ton, 96.1. FM. Our other presenting sponsors, Edward Jones, Making Sense of Investing. Contact Sean Stevens in South Bend, Bob Borlick in Liberty, Four Winds Casino, your entertainment escape, Legacy Heating and Air, your cooling and cleaning air specialists. Find them online, LegacyHeatingAndAirInc.com. South Bend Orthopedics, team physicians for the University of Notre Dame since 1949. And Wings Etc. Grill and Pump with 14 Michiana area locations. Stop in today or order online at togo.wingsetc.com. All right, Jim, well, uh, let's uh, just get firing away. What do you have for us today? All right. So USC fired Clay Helton this weekend, or last week, over the course of this week. Uh, A lot of Notre Dame fans actually weren't too happy with the dismissal because, you know, Notre Dame's won four or five with the Trojans with Helton as head coach. So my question is, would you rather have your rival just be bad every year, or would you rather have them be good so that the rivalry is better and your wins actually mean something when you beat them? Are you stealing my material? What's going on? Maybe. I thought you came. I thought you came up with questions, and then I came up with questions for you. I was going to give this one oh, to you. Oh, so, oh okay. um, yeah, you know, I personally, I just say, I, I really don't care how good they are. I just want to yeah. beat them. I don't I don't need I don't need the game to mean something more I don't need them to both be ranked or you Mm -hmm. know any of that kind of stuff I just want to beat the other team I really could not care less and like when you it's interesting when you look at USC because really when you you know like I, I heard Colin Cowherd earlier this week talking about what USC's not dead you know it's a great program mm-hmm. it's Los Angeles and all this and you know to an extent that's all true but when you really start to dig down deeper with USC and I mean you, you can say this to an extent about Notre Dame as well but I, I think 
it goes a little bit longer with USC. You look back the last 30 years, and really the Pete Carroll era is the only really highly successful time over the last 30 years for USC football. Now, you can go back to the end of the 80s when, you know, 88, when you you had number one versus number two, Notre Dame and USC and all that stuff out Mm -hmm. of the Coliseum. But, uh, you know, Pete Carroll has had the only really successful stretch. One, he was not a popular choice (laughs) when he was hired. (laughs) Right. Two, he did build the program up. But three, there was obviously some shady stuff we know about, you know, uh, Reggie Bush. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me that Reggie Bush was the only one who was, who was uh, you know, probably involved in that stuff. But Pete Carroll has also gone to the NFL where he's turned the Seattle Seahawks into year-in and year-out winners. So, uh, you know, I, yeah, it's Los Angeles and all that stuff. I, I do still think you have to find the right guy. But to answer the original questions, I don't care when it comes to rivals. I just want to beat my rival. I, I don't. I don't care if they are, you know, undefeated going into the game. I don't care if they're winless. I don't care if they're 500. I just want to beat my rival. So I don't care how good they are and how meaningful, you know, quote unquote, it makes that game when you play them. Okay. For me, I want my rival to actually win every so often, just because when when teams get you know into these rivalry games and one side is perpetually winning all the time, it's not a rivalry anymore. You know, it's, it's it, like it takes all the fun out of True. it. It's, it it's, like, it's like, oh, well, there's a, there's a W. You know, all the intrigue is gone. All the, uh, you know, all the reasons for me to really pay attention to it yeah. are gone. So I, I, like, I like both teams being good, or at least on an on a equal playing field. Uh, I, I think if... If Notre Dame is, you know, in this position to where they're contending for a playoff spot, you know, you definitely want, you know, all all good wins, you know. But if you can get them, you know, if you if you can beef the resume up just a little bit, uh, you know, every little bit helps. So, uh, you know, I, I like I like having a rival that, you know, will come back every so often and, you know, punch you in the teeth basically. Yeah, I mean, and you get that because, like, even in some of Notre Dame's best years under Brian Kelly, when when Notre Dame should have been head and shoulders better than USC, I mean, USC still gave them a game, like in 2012 when when they went to the BCS championship game. That game was closer than I think a lot of people thought. A couple years back when Notre Dame went to the college football playoff for the first time, I think that that game was a little bit tighter than most people thought it was going to be just based on record so you know i get what you're saying you know because like you can look at it like purdue is coming to town this Mm -hmm. week and purdue used to be on the schedule every year from 1946 to 2014 every year notre dame and purdue would play but that was one of those games somewhat similar to michigan state i think you know what michigan state became it's like it's it's a rivalry because it's because you play them every year. But at the you know, and like for in, in Purdue's case, you've got you know for the fan bases, proximity and all that kind of stuff. You've got a lot of local people, you know, in Michiana who end up going to Purdue. They don't go to Notre Dame, but they go to Purdue. Maybe they grew up rooting for Notre Dame. Maybe they didn't. But you know, so I think for the fans, it becomes more of a rivalry. But like from a Notre Dame player and team perspective. Those kind of games, it was more a rivalry for the other team just because they hated 
Notre Dame. You know, it was like it, kind of along the lines of Boston College. It was more a rivalry for the other team than it was for Notre Dame. So, you know, they're all different. But, like, look at look at Ohio State and Michigan. You know, the Buckeyes have owned that, that rivalry lately. But I don't think it's any less a rivalry. So I, I get what you're saying, but I just want to beat them. I don't, I don't care how good or bad they are. All right. All right. So, of course, the, uh, the big question around here, or at least the big story anyway around here, uh, the last couple of days, Purdue can't bring the bass drum. <laughs> uh, the world's biggest The drum. world's biggest bass drum. Uh, do you buy the reason that Notre Dame is giving him? <laughs> oh, I do. Okay. I do. And I realize there's some sympathy for Purdue mm-hmm. on this whole thing, but Notre Dame created that visiting tunnel a few years back. Yeah. And now Notre Dame and Purdue haven't played for seven years. And so that tunnel was just built within the last few years when they reconfigured the stadium. So this is something that Purdue has had not, not had to deal with before. But, you know, Notre Dame has said, you can do whatever you want, but you're coming through the visitor's tunnel. You're not coming through the main tunnel. And they've done it, you know, in part to keep to keep teams separated, you know, so you don't have to worry about, you know, whatever foolish stuff going on in the main tunnel. And, you know, I don't know if this has come into play for, for other schools before, but, like, look at, at Stanford. Like, Stanford's ban ha, banned has been permanently banned from Notre Dame, and it had nothing to do <laughs> with the tunnels. At least Purdue's band gets to come. They can leave their stupid drum back in West Lafayette. I, I really, you know, it, it might as well be the world's tiniest violin because I don't really care if they get to bring their drum. Their, mm-hmm. their team gets to come. Their band still gets to come here. There are other drummers in the band. So you know, just because that big stupid drum does not get to come, you know, out onto Notre Dame Stadium, I really couldn't care less, and I doubt that Purdue's players really care that much about it. You know, so and like and 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 now, as well with with COVID protocols and and everything else, I, I I think you still do have to be, you know, somewhat cautious about keeping everyone separated. You know, I, I get it. You know, could Notre Dame just allow Purdue to to drag its big old drum through the main tunnel and and over there into the corner? Sure, but they've got a policy. Their policy yeah. says if you're the visiting team, whatever, you know, your team and whatever you're going to bring on the field has to come through the visiting tunnel. If you make an exception for a big stupid drum, then you have to start making exceptions for anyone else who might have something they want to bring through the tunnel in the future. So it is what it is. I, I, I really don't care if the drum gets to come or not. All I know is that Purdue people are ticked. <laughs> that's right. Purdue, you know, that's kind Purdue of fans. that's kind of that's the fun of like yeah. what we have missed with this rivalry because exactly. there's always yeah. been a little bit of bitterness. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know that that kind of stepchild syndrome that you know that that came with the rivalry. And mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah, you know, I get it. If you're a Purdue fan, but you know, like, are you there to watch the game or are you there to listen to the big dumb drum? That's <laughs> I just. <laughs> I, I love all the all the different ways that you have called it just something else throughout the <laughs> throughout the last five minutes. Big dumb drum, you know, the, the big drum, you know, whatever. I, I love all the variations that you have gone off with. Uh, yeah, my I I know this because firsthand because my wife went to Purdue, graduated from Purdue. Uh, okay, I, I have other friends who went to Purdue as well, and I I I sent them the link uh, to the story, and I was like, hey, check this out. <laughs> and uh and they were just like what 
They can't do what? <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it it's at least going to make things fun. I know that much. Uh, I think so as well. You know, I, you know, it, I think it's, <laughs> you know, I know people are saying, oh, Notre Dame's being petty about this and all that stuff. But I, I, I think it's pretty funny, yeah. actually, myself. <laughs> I, I will say this. The fact that they've been able to bring it to other school, you know, like they like this is the first performance that it's missing in 42 years. Yeah. As long as I've been alive, <laughs> that thing has been <laughs> that thing has been at college football games. So I can understand why you know you got to keep the string going for the drum. It's like you're playing for the drum now. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's my. But you know, yeah. again, like Stanford's band, mm-hmm. their whole entire band. Yeah. It, for like <laughs> what? It's been like I don't know, twenty five, thirty years. Stanford's band hasn't yeah. been able to come to the stadium at all, just because of you know the way that whole crowd acts yeah. <laughs> or acted or whatever. So at least the ba- at least Purdue's band gets to be here. They have to leave yeah. one exceptionally large drum mm-hmm. at home, but everyone else, <laughs> everyone else still gets to come and, and play their instrument. Like the flute player still gets to play the flute, the saxophone and the trumpets and the trombones. They all still get to do their thing. And there are other drums in the band. So I, I think they can make do with probably the other 10 or 15 drums that are in the band. So I've, uh, I, my career started off down in Lafayette too, and I was able to get to a bunch of Purdue games. Oh yeah. And, uh, I could never figure out what song that bass drum was ever playing anyway. (laughs) Well, you know, like they were, they were just hitting the, you know, just beating the thing. And I'm just like, that doesn't go with this song. Well, let me put it this way, (laughs) because again, you know, Notre Dame and Purdue played every year from yeah. 1946 through 2014. Mm-hmm. So that means that I was at probably, I'm trying to think, I got here in 2000, you know, so until the series ended in 2014. Now, that was down in Indianapolis. I didn't go to that game. But, you know, so that's that's what, like seven, eight Notre Dame-Purdue games mm-hmm. that I was at over the years. I don't ever recall – Um. Hearing the you know the drum specifically, I mm-hmm. you know there's it's not like I was ever locked in. It's like oh that big drum they you know they sure right. can play that big drum. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember anything. There is never a minute that I remember that has anything associated to Purdue's world's largest drum. My so, uh, my who my, cares? my days in Lafayette were uh, you know, I was I was able to get a lot more field access than I am now. Oh, so you know. That, so that, you were down there. You were yeah. feeling the rhythm of the drum is what oh, yeah. you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was feeling the beat, you know. All right. So. All right. Really, that's all I had. Uh, uh, I guess I do have one question. And I asked this of Brian, uh, Brian Driscoll on Wednesday when I was okay. filling in for you. Sure. Notre Dame, you know, their defense, fifth ranked in the country in sacks, sixth, mm-hmm. sixth ranked in, uh, in tackles for loss. Right. Yet Notre Dame has only won by a combined six points so far. So does yeah. Purdue, does Purdue have a chance? Uh, you know what? I I think they do. I don't think it has to do with the de- well. It has a little bit to do with the defense, but to me, it has more to do with what's going on on the offensive side of the ball with all the inconsistencies that yeah. are tied directly to the offensive line. But I think what is striking about you know, like you mentioned, the disruptive in, in Notre Dame's defense. Basically, 
What, what does it come down to? Around 70, 75% of the time, Notre Dame is playing lights out defense. They have given up 795 total yards this season through two games. 282 of those yards have come on four plays. The four plays that have mm-hmm. gone 60-plus yards, yeah. two in each game against Florida State and Toledo. Those four plays have averaged over 70 yards per play. The other 133 plays have averaged just 3.8 yards per play. So it's really just a matter defensively of, okay, can we even – you know, even if even if an, another team is going to hit a big play, can we cut it in half? You know, can we can mm-hmm. we make it like a thirty-yard play instead right, of a sixty-yard yeah. play? <laughs> you know, can we at least limit it if it's going to happen? But that's part of what happens being as aggressive as they are, blitzing all the time and doing all that stuff. Is you leave the back end so vacant if they hit that, and there's nobody back there to help out. But you know, the other side of that is they're averaging like thirty-three points per game. But, you know, we've all seen how inconsistent that is as well. And it's tied directly to the offensive line and the lack of success success they have had in the offensive line because they are a team that averaged well over five yards per carry last year and just rammed the ball down people's throats is averaging just 2.7 yards per carry through two games. And Mm -hmm. if you took Tyler Buckner and the impact that he had on last week's game out of it, they're under two yards per carry. For two games so that is woeful now sacks do play into that as well but they've also given up 10 sacks so to me that's still the biggest thing now the defense does have to figure out how do you eliminate those explosive plays because those four plays have really kept the other team in it you know just from a pure defensive standpoint but again so much of it also goes back to Notre Dame's offense because really with the skill talent they have Notre Dame should be averaging up around 45 points per game if they could just run the ball somewhat effectively, just have an average rushing game. So to me, it's still, yes, the defense has to eliminate those explosive plays, but the offense still has to hold up its end of the bargain, and it's directly linked to what's going on with the offensive line. Okay. All right. Yeah, they've got to they've stop with – with giving up big plays because like yeah. you said it's been most of <laughs> it's been most of what's been killing them as yeah. as far as yardage goes so exactly. i mean if if they can just eliminate the big play i think this defense is fine you know i mean this defense is probably better than fine even you know yeah. like brian brian and i were were just like they are just camping out in in backfields and uh you know like i was i just kept you know, pushing it further, you know, like Notre Dame this weekend is probably going to be bringing in, you know, bricks and, and a wood frame to start building the house. That's how much they're living in the backfield, you know, like, yeah. so, I mean, that, you know, like the big, just keep the big play, you know, if you want to have big plays on offense, by all means, have big plays on offense, right? but uh, don't give them up on defense. Well, and you know, they're, they're like, when you talk about big plays on offense, there are also big plays there to be had, but yeah. both quarterbacks have missed some opportunities, mm-hmm. you know, like when a guy's open and things like that. There, there are plays to be made there, and that's why they have game film when every game is yeah. over, so they can look and evaluate and go, okay, now I missed that. I've got to hit that next time. I've got to see that next time because there are other guys in this offense who they can continue to get involved. I know Braden Lindsey was getting pretty frustrated last week because there were times when he was wide open mm-hmm. and Jack Cohn either 
you know, didn't see him or he was just under so much duress or, you know, a combination of both of those that he didn't have the opportunities to. So there, there are plays there to be made. And, again, Notre Dame's offense is just chock full of playmakers with the skill position guys. The offensive line has just got to be – the offensive line just has to be average. They are well below average right now. Yeah. They've just got to be average to help those guys out. Do you think part of that's just they gotta they got to get a couple games to, where it's the same group? I, I think it comes down – could that have something to do with it? Yes. But, like, the run blocking or lack of run blocking mm, yeah. is what really disturbs me because, like, when you ask most offensive linemen, it, it's the pass blocking that's usually a little bit more of a struggle because it's not just, you know, uh, full bore contact, you know, bulldoze somebody, that kind of thing. The run blocking, I'm, I'm just – I'm – it's a head-scratcher that they are not better and they are not more physical, as big and as strong as they are, that they haven't been more physical off the line. Now, we're going to see some guys rotate in at the guard positions tomorrow. And I don't know that that's necessarily the answer because, like, if you've got your number one and two guys, now all of a sudden we're going to see number three, number four, and maybe even number five guard come in. Like Brian Kelly said, well, these guys have been – you know, taking so many reps and they've been out there so long. Well, I mean, that's typically what happens every year with an offensive line. You just you don't rotate guys that much. I think they're searching for answers, and so I guess we'll see if that produces anything tomorrow, but I'm a little bit skeptical that it will. All right. That's all I had. All right. Well, kind of piggybacking on that, because of the fact that the run game was so lacking last week, in part anyway, we saw Tyler Buckner, the freshman quarterback, come in for the first time, and he gave the offense a spark. So do you buy or sell using two quarterbacks for Notre Dame going forward? As long as it keeps working, yeah, let's do it. Uh, it, it, it was obvious, and, and not to take anything away from Jack Cohn either. He's been having a, a fantastic year statistically. Right. But Tyler Buckner gives them an added dimension to the offense. You know, now you gotta now you got to look at – at the guys, you know, with the ball, getting the ball. And is he going to make a play, like, immediately? Is he going to be throwing it? Like, as as long as you're not telegraphing what they're going to be doing. You know, like, if, like if it starts getting into a, into a rhythm where all he's doing is coming in on run plays, right. that's going to be pretty easy to decipher. But if, if, if they mix it up, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Do whatever you got to do to win. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's the key. It can't just be, okay, here comes Tyler Buckner, here's the run package. Right. You know, run has to be in there. We did see him throw last week, but, you know, again, there were some opportunities where, you know, if he makes a different decision, you know, maybe some of those other throws or, or non-throws become even bigger plays. But, yeah, I, I, like, I like the fact that they were struggling. They bring in this quarterback. And, you know, he hits the run right off the bat. Then he hits another run after that. The biggest thing is going to be – so So I, I, I agree with the theory that, that in, in kind of spurts, in packages, different places on the field and different times in the game, Tyler Buckner can help them. They lose the element of surprise, though, because Toledo had no idea what to expect from True. Tyler Buckner because all they saw was Jack Cohn from mm-hmm. the first game and that's true freshmen you know so they had never seen him before so that's gone now Purdue is is going to have some kind of game plan in place when they see number 12 come out on the field they're going to have a different game plan 
I'm sure. So that you know that makes it even more important that Tyler Buckner is able to throw and he's not just going to be a running guy out there. But you know, I I think you do need to mix him in. I think that they needed to mix him in anyway, just because of the fact that you've got a grad transfer in Cone who came in and these other two inexperienced quarterbacks behind him. And and while like Tommy Reese has said, well, I'm only thinking about this year. And you know Brian mm-hmm. Kelly would probably tell you that as well. I do still think you've got to you, you know you've got to get uh, you've got to get these guys some reps under fire. You yeah. Know, because yeah. because next year it's either going to be Drew Pine or Tyler Buckner who's going to be the starting quarterback when they go to Ohio State to start off the season. Okay. All right. I think that's going to do it for this segment. We are going to take a timeout. When we come back, we're going to look more at Purdue. We're going to be joined by Alan Karpik from GoldenBlack.com, the longtime. Uh, publisher of that website. He has covered Purdue for a long time, and we will talk to Ellen Karpik coming up next. It is the Leprechaun Lunch, and we are presented by First State Bank on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. The Leprechaun Lunch, presented by First State Bank, continues on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. And we are joined now to uh, talk a little Purdue by Alan Karpik. He is the publisher of the Purdue website, goldblack.com. It is hard to believe that that 2012 game, because I was just talking about Tommy Reese and Everett Golson, that's the yeah. last time that, that Purdue was here. From You know, you say you, you're you glad to, to see it back from an overall you know, Purdue fan perspective and maybe even the team, I don't know, you know, like how much do you think this series is missed by Purdue? I think it's missed a lot by Purdue fans. Uh, and I think, you know, you, sometimes it's out of sight, out of mind, I suppose, for players because right. none of these guys have played at Notre Dame. But once they play uh, in the shadow of touchdown Jesus, it'll be it'll be an experience they won't forget. <laughs> um, but I do think the fans, I, do, I think the fans, uh, the Purdue fans do miss it, uh, even though it, it always was made it tough for a program like Purdue because you had Notre Dame on the schedule every year. It was a game that you almost always or most of the time would walk into as an underdog, and you were looking like you had to swim upstream to get a victory. But it also really, if you look at the history of Purdue football, what one game put Purdue on the map? Purdue beating Notre Dame in the 1950s and 60s yeah. uh, when the Irish were such a storied program, not that they're not now, uh, really made Purdue football what it is today. Well, and this is year five for Jeff Brom right now. And, you know, he led him to seven wins in his first season, one of two winning seasons in the last 13 years Purdue has had is, is they've had, you know, some up and downs post Joe Tiller. But, uh, you know, they've been below 500 the last three years they're off to a good start is is this at all a make or break type year for Brom well I I do think it's certainly if you look at his contract it's not because he's got five more years on his contract guaranteed at a at at money that uh, you know and 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 when you're two and oh no one's talking about that anyway nor should they be sure he's a guy that uh, uh, Purdue really but when he decided in November 2018 to stay at Purdue not go to Louisville. A lot of people thought he was going to Louisville. Purdue made a huge commitment to him, and I think it's Brahms' uh, intention and Purdue's intention and, and uh, to, to make sure that that goes. So is this a make-or-break game? It certainly is a game that Purdue will make-or-break year. Purdue needs to change its direction. That's the, simple, that's the first thing. And I think 
You look at where Brom, what Brom inherited in 17, coming off in 2016, where Purdue was was in the Kansas-esque uh, level of the Power <laughs> Five at that point. Uh, and the job he did in 17 and 18 to turn that program around uh, was pretty amazing uh, where Purdue was. I mean, I don't think any of us that were following it closely thought that he'd win five games in his first two years, let alone winning uh, 13 or whatever he did. So, uh, But then it changed. In 19, he had a terrible year of injuries, uh, lost some close games. And then last year, they started off well and lost their last four. And so doubt has crept into the program and, and, and among the fan base. So, yeah, it's an important year. It's not a year that's going to determine his, his long-term future, but it is a, a year that will determine the relative comfort level of whether Purdue fans are going to be enjoying college football in West Lafayette over the next few years. I, I think you want to see that direction change. Jeff Brom, if he, if he was on this interview, would be saying the same thing. He's about as competitive a guy as you're ever going to see. I think he wants to, uh, he wants to get this turned around and, and as soon as possible. And, uh, you know, they started the right way this year. We'll see how it goes on Saturday, but uh, Purdue's off to a decent start. Yep, Purdue football is what we're talking with Alan Karpik from goldenblack.com. The local kid here, Xander Horvath, the, the running back from Mishawaka uh, Marion High School here in, in our area, he, he, of course, broke his fibula last week. When you look at the impact, how big is that for the Boilermakers right now? It's it's a big deal, yeah, and, and here's why. You've got a guy that, uh, yeah, I understand he's a walk-on, and but when you try to get uh, per, try to protect in the scheme that Jeff Brom runs, he's your best blocker back there. He's your best short dis- distance running. Produce not been good running the football, but if you look at Xander's numbers last year, they're pretty impressive mm-hmm. uh, in six games. So, yeah, it's a big loss uh, because I think as much of his leadership, his ability to provide some stability back there uh, all those things that make a big deal that make a big difference and and Purdue will have to find a way Purdue's had a real you know one of the worst it has been the worst running attack early in the Big Ten the last couple of years and it needs to find a way and especially in a game where Notre Dame if you're going to beat Notre Dame you've got to be able to to play the trench game a little bit and uh, and it's hard for Purdue to do that on any basis, but they've got to be able to get that two yards when they need it. Horvath has shown he can do that. So it's a loss, and, and uh, I, I think uh, you know, Purdue's got uh, – it's not something they can't come back from, but they're going to have to make a major, major adjustment, I think, to, to uh, get what they want out of that offense. What about the quarterback, Jack Plummer? He came into to fall camp. He had a, a quarterback battle on his hands. He ultimately ends up winning the job after playing some last year. How, how would you evaluate what you've seen from Plummer the last couple of years? Well, well I think, you know, and, and again, I, I think you have to almost, uh, as like Sean, I think it's you and me and nine others could have beaten UConn. And I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, and, well, you know, may, maybe not. But maybe I, not, not Kansas, I don't know. And I'm a Kansas My alum, hands so. aren't very good. I, I can't catch the ball in traffic. But, uh, no, and so you have to be really careful to, to, to look at that. But I like, uh, I think Plummer's come off, come out well. He he is, uh, they've been able to protect him. He's He's got to, the ability to make some plays with his feet or at least keep plays alive with his feet. Um, I think Purdue it will be, you know, I think a serious question still because of the competition level so far is really, really, and, you know, facing another name uh, defensive front that's formidable. Can, can they keep him clean? 
uh, and and keep him in a place where he can he can react because he's got a lot of options at receiver and he's got one of the best options in the country in David Bell. They really just aren't. He's on the very short list of the best receivers in the country, and and you're going to enjoy watching him. And uh, and Payne Durham may not be a Mike Mayer, but he's a guy that uh, he's been a tight end, very very good. Uh, so Plummer's got weapons. Plummer has played well today. He hasn't made mistakes. He played well last year uh, for the most part. Uh, even though his record as a starter was just two and seven in the two years he's had to start, you know Purdue Purdue was close to winning some games, and, and I don't I think it would be hard to pin on, pin it on Plummer's play on how uh, Purdue's done. And yet quarterbacks are like pitchers in baseball; you, you measure them by how, with their wins and losses. And so uh, Jack Plummer still got to prove some things from that standpoint. You know, we talk about that 2012 meeting between Notre Dame and Purdue at Notre Dame Stadium. Bob Diaco was, of course, Notre Dame's <laughs> defensive coordinator in that game, and he was at Purdue for a year. Last year, they have moved on from Bob Diaco. So what's the biggest impact that you've seen on that side of the ball so far? Well, I think the good thing is for Jeff Brom, you know, coaches need coaches with experience, and he brought in three guys in Ron English and Brad Lambert and, and of course, Mark Hagan, who has been at Purdue, uh, had had a had a ten year stint or so with under Joe Tiller, and I think it brought stability and uh, and 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 maybe voices uh, in the uh, conference room when you're when you're when you're talking as a staff. I think those are all good things for Jeff Brown. Jeff's been such an offensive guy; he's paying more attention to the defense, and so far so good. They're attacking; they've been aggressive. Hard to know last week. Again, I'm going back to my old adage of you and me and the other nine. (laughs) But uh, I do think that uh, Oregon State is pretty good offensively. I thought Purdue did a pretty good job uh, on them. But it'll be a whole different deal on on Saturday because Notre Dame can run two quarterbacks at you and and do some different things uh, that uh, it will be very different. But I like the direction. I think it's a direction Purdue has to go uh, if it's going to be competitive. Uh, it's got to be attacking. It's got to it's got to take risks uh, defensively and hope that you can make some plays. And so far, so good. At least in 2021. Any any concern? Of, I believe I saw one sack through two games, and yeah. they they had just five last year. Now, granted, different defense, but any any concern with that going into this game? Well, I, I think it's always a concern, and yet you're going to also fans that they know his name if they know college football. George Karloftis is really. Right. A, an all-American level defensive end. He, yes, and you know uh, there are now they measure everything in terms of. Uh, I think they measure wingspan at at uh, at the point of attack. Sometimes and it's amazing what <laughs> they measure. But he has got a guy that that has made plays. Has been all over. Has caused numerous qu- quarterback hurries. Uh, he will be he'll be a problem for Notre Dame. I, I I I'm sure that that's the case. And Brian Kelly and staff will will come up with plays to double-team him or come up with a scheme to double-team or whatever they choose to do. But uh, it is a concern if you can put pressure. But I would say this, in the first two weeks, and again, uh, be careful what you say there, but Purdue has put more pressure, uh, has been able to be a little bit more attacking, and it's really helped in its ability from a pass defense standpoint. It's given their corners a chance to and their uh, all their DBs a chance to make some plays. So I think Purdue's better in that area. Yes, if you're going to beat Notre Dame, uh, you better make some plays on the quarterback. You better cause a turnover or two. Mm-hmm. 
uh, if you're going to pull an upset in South Bend. Now, you you said they brought in three guys, and it's my understanding these are tri-defensive coordinators. Is that right? Like, right. Yes. How, yeah, how's, this, how's this thing uh, how's this in, work? They brought in four <laughs> defensively, but uh, Brad Lambert, the linebacker's coach, is coaching is – is calling the defense okay? okay ron english is uh, uh i think it's got the corners and, and mark hagan's got the defensive line uh so but uh, lambert is is calling the defense so that uh you know i i a guy like mark hagan is you know spent time at indiana he spent time at texas at lsu texas a&m i believe it is and uh, he is uh modeled a, p- a few assistant coaching uniforms but uh He's an Indiana guy. He's an literally an Indiana player. Played at IU, but he he was very successful at Purdue in recruiting, and he's already made a difference at least in Purdue's sphere uh, in recruiting in the state of Indiana and where he's gone. Uh, I think a little bit in Texas. Alan, you know, I I think the uh, you know the feel from this side going into this game definitely feels different than it was probably three weeks ago. Is there a yeah. particular matchup that you're looking at in this game that you know that 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 could decide this game ultimately? Well, I'm interested to see how Notre Dame will will match. You know, Notre Dame's got obviously an All-American in the defensive backfield, and 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 will that you know be David Bell? You know, how well they contain him. Bell has done well just against just about everybody. He's been productive. Um, I think that's a matchup. I I, I really also think. Uh, can produce offensive line allow Jack Plummer time to maneuver? Uh, I'm just not sure yet. I don't think it, I'm not being necessarily critical of Purdue's offensive line. It's been a struggle. It's gotten better, but there's not a lot of you know. There, there's enough experience, uh, but will they play at a high enough level to allow Purdue to do what it has to do offensively and kind of control, find some way to maybe not control the game, but stay in the game enough that. Uh, you know, you can make it. A, you know, you can make it a game like Toledo did. Now Toledo got got turnovers at the right time. That's going to have to happen. I know you're an eight point underdog. I, I would say this with no great analysis. It would be doubtful to me that if the turnover battles even or or Notre Dame's advantage, I can't imagine. I, I'd be surprised for a scenario that Notre Dame loses this game. But if Purdue can cause some things, which they haven't done a lot of yet, mm-hmm. uh, but they are if they can do some of that. And capture a little bit of momentum. Uh, you know, who knows what can happen in, uh, on Saturday. And, and I think it has the ability to be a four-quarter game, a game that's at least interesting well into the second half. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that, you know, based on how both teams have played so far going into this game. Alan Karpik from goldenblack.com. Appreciate it as always, Alan. Great talking to you. And hopefully it doesn't take another seven years <laughs> before we, we well, do Well, I again. can say we're going to be talking. I'll already pencil it in. If you want to do it, I can put it on my iCal that uh, somewhere, somewhere in the second week of 2024 we'll be talking again. But, let's do uh, it. <laughs> no, let's hope, we, let's hope we do. And maybe we'll talk about Dander Horvath running for 375 yards and you'll want to talk about it from that uh when he comes back from his fibula hopefully he will before the end of the season but uh, there you go. not to make light of his injury but uh, we always look forward to it thanks for having us on all right absolutely thanks thanks as always alan take care always good to have alan Karpik on from goldenblack.com like i said i mean we used to talk to him every year when that series was continuous and uh, not so much the last few years. Notre Dame and Purdue tomorrow 2.30 kickoff at Notre Dame Stadium. Our coverage begins at 8 a.m. with a replay of the Brian Kelly Show. And then at 9 o'clock, it's the game day show. 
two hours, and it'll be full of guests. Tim Growl and Vince D'Addario. And 11 o'clock, Darren Pritchett and I have game day sports beat. 1.30, it is the Notre Dame Football uh, National Network tailgate show. 2.30, the game kicks off. And then after the game, Evan Sharpley and I have the post-game show. We will take you into the night. Well, not too late in the night since it's a 2.30 kickoff. But uh, we'll take you into the evening anyway with the post-game show. Take a timeout. When we come back, Jim Irizarry and I have a couple things we're going to topic uh, cover. Uh, Sports-related connection with the unfortunate passing of comedian Norm MacDonald this week. And uh, also, a new 30 for 30 was unveiled this week. The uh, Once Upon a Time in Queens. It was about the 1986 New York Mets. So uh, we, will, uh, we will hit both of those and maybe uh, another thing or two if we have time after we take this time out. Leprechaun Lunch presented by First State Bank on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. Leprechaun Lunch continues on Sports Radio 960 WSBT along with Jim Irizarry. I'm Sean Styers. We've got uh, a few minutes here. We've got Notre Dame and Purdue coming up tomorrow at Notre Dame Stadium. Jim, I wanted to talk a little bit, though, about the new 30 for 30 that came out this week. Once upon a time in Queens, and now you are... A, uh, a born and raised New York Mets fan. So I know that this had to, uh, th- this one had to make you feel pretty good. It was all about the 1986 New York Mets. W- what did you think about the four part series this week? I mean, that was my team. That like I, I was I was a formative young child as, as that team was being built. And, like that was my team, man. Uh, and and eighty six, of course, you know the the icing on the cake there. Uh, I I really enjoyed it. I I I loved seeing uh, like the old footage of uh, of the fans running onto the field after they won the uh, the division. Uh-huh. And just tore the field apart. <laughs> but like like I was I was just like that will never happen again. Oh, I know. Never. And I don't I don't think it's really happened since. Like you don't see it, you know, like you see it all the time in college, but they're not tearing the field apart. Like people were literally just taking chunks of the field with them. You know, and, and this is just for the division. Right. That's just, exactly right. Just for the division. Just how starved they were. Yeah, yeah. E- exactly. Uh, you know, so that you know that was that was cool. Uh, I, I there were some things, and I've read the book by Jeff Perlman too, uh-huh. uh, the Bad Guys one, which is kind of where a you know a, a good deal of the information came from anyway. Sure. Uh, but there were things that you know in in the uh, in the documentary that were not in the book that I did not know about. Uh, you know the the contentious relationship between Keith Hernandez and his dad. Yeah, yeah. that was that was some interesting stuff. That like yeah. Keith, here's Keith Hernandez, who's been you know in the majors at that point for probably what 10, 12, 15 years even. He, yeah, he's a season. And, like pro. his dad yeah. is still. He said the worst thing he ever did was buy his dad a satellite dish because then his dad is calling <laughs> yeah. him in the middle of games to you know. To like, yeah. It's like okay, I'm three for three, and then he goes three for four, and it's the fourth at bat. His dad is still reaming him, you know, like he's a uh, still a little leaguer out yeah. there or something. So yeah, that was really interesting. And uh, and speaking of Keith Hernandez, uh, the unexpected star of the documentary, Keith's cat Haji. Keith's cat, yes. Yeah. Um, you, you know what though? <laughs> here's 
here's something that I and no, look, I, I should just I, I was when I, I you know I grew up I was a teenager in the early '80s and you know into the mid '80s as well when this is going on. Mm-hmm. I grew up a Gary Carter fan from when he was in in Montreal. I've got sure. like I still have virtually every Gary Carter baseball card that was ever made. You know, like Mm -hmm. I've got the sleeves and I've got them, you know, like tucked away. And so when he was traded to the Mets, and and I was actually a a Hernandez fan when he was with the Cardinals. I really didn't like the Cardinals, but I liked Hernandez when he was with the Cardinals. And so when those guys were traded to the Mets, it was like, oh, man, they. You know, I think Hernandez might have said it. It's like, you know, being sent to Siberia, basically. At that point, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, because the Mets were horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, it, now they had started to get a little bit good by the time Carter was traded. So yeah. I was, even as like a kid growing up in Kansas who liked the Royals, you know, remember that this is obviously pre-social media and all this different stuff. So you don't get like extra exposure to these guys back then. So I was fully entrenched. When when Carter got traded, I was fully entrenched in. Okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know pull for the Mets now. You know that that mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, so this was before '86. You know, so it wasn't like I jumped on the '86 bandwagon as they're terrorizing everybody, <laughs> right. out winning there. the division by 20. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, but like you know, again, like what I didn't realize and what I found out because I re- I've read part of that book that you're talking about and you know watching this it's like i didn't realize what a total dork gary carter was oh yeah yeah you know oh yeah uh, you know i found that out through the years <laughs> you know just 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 what a you know dork he was you know but at the same time i mean he was obviously a great player but the other thing that i think that you pick up watching this it you know you can't get completely caught up in statistics because mm-hmm. keith hernandez the leadership that he brought to that team and just the, you know, I think you can argue that, that he's the best defensive first baseman of all time. One of them. Yeah. He belongs in the hall of fame. Absolutely. He belongs in the hall of fame. And it's like, you know, again, you know, like Harold Baines opened a Pandora's box for everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. But I would just say, if Harold Baines gets to be in the hall of fame, Keith Hernandez Hernandez needs to be in the hall of fame. And you get that from just like little things like, like when he goes out to the mound to talk to Jesse o- o- Oh Roscoe. God, that was my that was another part that I didn't know about either. Yeah, he's like, oh. and this is in the the National League Championship Series against the Astros. Mm-hmm. You know, when he goes out there and he says, <laughs> "Jesse, you throw one more fastball, and you and I are going to have a fight." And so <laughs> Jesse throws three straight sliders, I think, to Kevin Bass, if I remember. Yes, right. Kevin and Bass strikes him out. Yeah, yeah, Bass to to end the game. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like. But, but again, it's like guys listen to Keith Hernandez, and Keith Hernandez had such baseball savvy. That guy, if there's a guy who, you know, his stats might not add up because he's a first baseman and all that stuff, he needs to be in the Hall of Fame. for what. Because I, I think you can argue those 86 Mets, as great as they were and for all the characters that they had, they don't win that World Series if they don't have Keith Hernandez on that team. No, no, they don't. The, he – he was the unquestioned leader, the guy that yeah. everybody turned to on that team. And he he would back it up, too. You know, he backed up, yep. you know, what he needed, you know, when they needed a big hit, he got the big hit. When they needed a big defensive play, he was always the guy setting up a defensive play, you know, like digging balls out of the dirt on a, on a double play or something or just right. making a great play himself. Charging a bunt. You know, there was yeah. like that one play that they showed where he's charging – 
and he, you know, he ends up making the play over at third base, and you know, he's like by the third baseline by the plate you know, yeah. when he feels the ball thrown right. across his body. Yeah, and he's throwing Just, he's throwing to third to Gary Carter, right? Who, yeah, that's who, right. who would never that's right. play they third turned base? A double play. Yeah, because Carter had to go to third base because of you know like injuries and you mm-hmm. know, different. Different stuff like yeah yeah I mean just just great stuff and like you know the the way unfortunately Mets management uh, sort of unraveled that team afterwards yeah. Yeah. preemptively trading Kevin Mitchell for no real reason and you right. know, all these different things it's just but it was it was great I would say I think that they kind of stretched the material I don't know if four episodes was necessary <laughs> a little you know, bit like, of a stretch yeah starting off with oh. Let's you know setting this up with 1977 and you know like the, you know the the uh, the the predominant you know what's going on in New York at the time and some different yeah. stuff. But I, I just yeah it was really great and and like I think one of the best shots of the whole thing is after the Mookie Wilson Bill Buckner play in Game Six that camera follows Mookie all the way it's like behind him the whole way through the dugout, you know, off the field, through yeah. the dugout, down the steps, up the steps, into the clubhouse. That was a really cool shot yeah, that, it was. like, I, I don't think anyone's ever got to see before. So there was some really yeah. cool stuff in that uh, in that 30 for 30, I thought. I forgot just how in the head Mike Scott was in that series. Oh, man. How, how in yeah, – Like you talk about Carter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And – and then when when they actually showed, you know, like you know, because they were talking about you know Scott scuffing the ball, because I mean for some reason he all of a sudden became this great pitcher, right? Uh, like out of nowhere, you know, like in the tail end of his career, he suddenly became becomes this great pitcher. But who was and, it? Was it Ed Lynch? Who was the guy who's like, you want to see one of the balls? He's like, I, I've got one here for you, <laughs> and it's like. 35 yeah. years later, there's still scuffs on the baseball. Ed know? Hearn. It was Ed Hearn. Ed Hearn. It was yeah. Ed Hearn. Yep, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I was happy to see Ed Hearn as well. Uh, like, I know from the uh, from the Bad Guys 1 book, time has not exactly been kind to Ed Hearn for some reason. Yeah. Well, time hasn't been t- kind to, uh, to a lot Lenny of guys, Dykstra really. either. Uh, yeah. It's like, oh, no. You yeah. know, Lenny Dykstra is only like five or six years older than me, but he, he, he yeah. looks and sounds like he's 80. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, I mean, again, like that is a guy, like if you were a, mates, a Mets fan, you absolutely hated Lenny Dykstra. But that guy, you know, we, we can talk about steroids by the time he was in Philly and all these different things. That guy sacrificed his body, and you cannot mm-hmm. argue that Lenny Dykstra didn't play hard you know he loved was, he Lenny was Dykstra with the Mets threw his body everywhere and you know he became a turd <laughs> oh absolutely life, oh absolutely but... he's he's a gigantic turd <laughs> yeah but I, I do think it was cool too you know like they actually let him out of jail for a weekend I guess when Gary Carter died and, and yeah. the whole team for as much as they kind of made fun of Gary you know they were all at the funeral and you know there was there was a lot of really good stuff in there I thought yeah, it was it was that was kind of like a brotherly type thing you know you make yeah. fun of the guy but He's our guy still. Exactly. He's our guy. He's, you know, we're going to stand up for the guy. And, yep. and I mean, Gary Carter was such a great player anyway. Yep. All so. right. we got to wrap it up. All right. Well, Uppercon Lunch is brought to you by First State Bank, lending strength to our communities by devoting ourselves to helping local businesses grow and prosper. Wings, et cetera, Four Winds Casino, and Edward Jones. For Jim Irizarry, Sean Styers, you've been listening to the Leprechaun Lunch.
Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering, char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. 